Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning, everybody. We are excited uh, to jump into Romans chapter 13 today, and I've entitled this morning's teaching, God and Government, all right? This came because we are studying Romans chapter 12, and part of Romans chapter 12 includes a conversation that Paul has with the church at Rome about how they engage with one another in community. And he outlines several different um, ways in which Christians are called to relate. Uh, First is um, to God. We find that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. All right, so he begins with this idea of how do you relate to God? And then he moves to this idea of how do you relate to the community of faith, the body of believers, the people who follow Jesus. And Romans chapter 12 Verses um, 3 through about 13, but it can kind of go even beyond that a little bit, talks about how does the church engage together, all right? And then he comes into talking about the community. Around chapter 12, verse 14 or so, he talks about what does it mean to to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And he begins uh, evolving this conversation of, okay, we're talking about relationship with God, relationship with the church community, relationship with those outside the church community, those even who bring persecution to you. And then we go to chapter 13, and we talk about how do we interact with the state, because that's another God-ordained relationship that we have within Scripture and within life. And so with um, holy fear and trepidation, trepidation here we go. Um, <laughs> we're going to jump into this. And l- let me say this, too, at the front end. Um, God's Word is f- filled with so many principles and teachings for us. Amen? Now, I will say very openly and honestly, I struggle with this. Even last night, my wife and I were talking about some of the nuances of the passage we're going to study this morning, and I go, what do you think about this and this? Does it extend to here and here? And so it's with grace, and it's with love, and it's with um, God's wisdom (laughs) that we need to engage in conversations like this. So whether you are in this room or whether you are online, I will say this, if, if you want to have a further conversation with me about this afterwards, I'd be happy to do that because it's something we have to learn to engage with in a meaningful, in a kind, in a forthright and loving way. And in fact, I, I think as much for the church as anything else, we, we have biblical conviction, uh, absolutely, But part of that biblical conviction is how do we engage about difficult matters of life and faith in a world um, where that can be very challenging? You know what I'm talking about, I would imagine. You go on any social media platform, you open any news thing, this conversation all of a sudden goes from here all the way up here. Let us be people who deal with truth who deal with honesty, but who do it in a sense, in a, in a perspective of love. And so, uh, I know Mark prayed. I'm going to pray again <laughs> as we jump into this. God, help us to see. Help us to hear. 
Help us to set our minds and our hearts on what is true. And Lord, to learn how to love those who disagree with me and who disagree with each other about how then do we walk this out? How, God, do we have the right lens with which to look at our world and to rightly apply your word? God, it's not as though that your word is unclear. Given the situations we find ourselves in, Lord, though, we we ask for wisdom to know how to apply rightly and justly. We bless you, God, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And here we go. I appreciate that big amen. (laughs) Um, All right, so let's start here. What comes to your mind when I show you this picture? All right. You had something that, come in, that came into your mind. You had something that came into your mind right there. Now let me ask you something else. What comes into your mind when I show you this picture? Okay, you don't need to talk out loud. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. I show you these two pictures because these are two government leaders. Uh, one is from one perspective in the United States. The other is from the other perspective in the United States. And I recognize that around these two perspectives, there's a whole host of other perspectives, right? We're going to talk about government leadership and how do we as followers of Jesus engage with this. For many of us here, seeing these people evoke some sort of emotion but God's word calls us to engage rightly. And so, with that said, my next slide, okay, we'll go to there. Um, with that said, would you stand with me and let's read the scripture. <clears throat> We're going to read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong, Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these, attacks, or to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those whom you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. All right, so picture number one, picture number two. You have seen those. I want to focus first on this very first sentence. It says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Okay, everyone. Who is included in everyone? Everyone, very good. You guys are on it today. All right, I love it. Yeah, everyone is included in everyone. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. There is no exemption clause that Paul has here when he's writing to the church at Rome. He doesn't say, hey, you people, you don't have to do that, but you people, you do. He says, everyone submit to the governing authorities. Um, Paul recognizes that all people have a relationship with regard to the state or to the government. And Paul's general idea is that the state is an authority to be used for the good of the people. 
All right? that, that's part of Paul's framework and how he's understanding the best use of government on behalf of its citizens. Now, this word submit, okay, so we have everyone, and then we have must submit. So we need to talk about submit. Now, the word submit here, <clears throat> it's a word that is, in general, not welcomed by many, all right? We, we say, especially to us very independent Westerners, we say, submit, we go, hang on just a second. <laughs> and actually, the Bible speaks about submission in a whole variety of ways. For, for example, um, it's the word that's used... Um, well, it's a word that's used within a marriage relationship. When it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. It, it's used in families. Children, submit yourself to your parents, for this is right. It's, it's used in the context of the body of Christ submitting to um, Christ himself. It's, it's used of a citizen submitting themselves to the state. Now, what does the word submit mean, though? In general, or, or kind, of, kind of as a broad sense, it means to place yourself under, okay? To place yourself under. And, and so it's, it's a voluntary action. Paul is saying, I want you to submit, but the idea behind the word is, I am willingly taking upon myself this command to lower myself for the betterment of this relationship I have with, whether it be church, or whether it be government, or whether it be a spouse relationship. Um, it, it is in the context of an ordered structure. Uh, you could also describe it as a voluntary yielding in love. A voluntary yielding in love. So when you hear the word submit, think, this is my chance to voluntarily yield myself in love. Love meaning, I am submitting for the sake of someone else. All right, now, in marriage, one of the things we do, um, uh, in, in pre-marriage counseling, when I work with young couples, I will say, uh, we'll talk about these, these passages that have to do with submission, and I'll say, submission, husband-to-be, is not something you command of your wife. But I'll say, wife, it is something that God calls you to out of reverence for Christ. To, to, to lower yourself, to make yourself uh, a servant of that relationship. Now, in that context, it also says, by the way, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so one of the things we often forget when we talk about submission in the marriage context, for example, is that there's a, there's a way that one person's supposed to respond and there's another way that the other person is supposed to respond. And when Paul is talking about, for example, wives submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord, he's putting the greater responsibility on the man because he says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a sacrificial type of love. Now, um, so submission means a voluntary yielding in love. Now, submission, there's two important things, and I'm thankful for Grant Osborne who pointed this out. Submission, number one, does not mean inferiority. It does not mean that the person who is submitting is less than the other person. Not at all. The scripture nowhere says that. There is... Um, the teaching going all the way back to Genesis that every person, male and female, are made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, and they have equal worth and dignity before God. So, when it comes to submission, it is never out of inferiority. Ever out of inferiority. Um, submission, uh, he says, is not absolute, but it's always qualified by our greater allegiance to God and his will. So it's not inferiority, but, but, but it's, it's also not absolute. It, it's qualified 
by the fact that first we submit to God, and we submit to God's teaching and to God's ways. Um, Submission, in Paul's mind, is for the purpose of bringing good to society. All right, he says that in this passage. It's for the purpose of bringing good to to society. Now, Romans were very proud citizens. Uh, you, You look at a town, for example, like Philippi, which is not anywhere close to Rome, but in many ways, it was a Roman colony. And, and they were proud of their Roman heritage. And, and the, the Roman um, ideals had been spread throughout all of this area over there. You know, Rome was the power of the world at this time. And uh, it was something to be prized to be a, a proud citizen of Rome. And the state of Rome was something that brought peace to many. All right? There's a phrase called the peace of Rome or the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But, but to others, it also brought difficulty. Uh, If you went against Rome, Rome would come down hard. Um, Christians are not to run away. This is Paul's idea. Christians are not to run away from submission to the state, but neither should the state define the Christian's purpose and existence. All right? And that's something that can happen a lot of times. We, we, we begin, for example, to take on this idea that we are more American than we are Christian. Um, one of the things I've had the opportunity to do is travel to various countries over the course of my time here and even before here. I, I've been to places in Asia. I've been to places in North Africa. I've been to places in the Middle East and to Central America. When you go and you travel, one of the things you realize, when you find brothers and sisters in Jesus, you have a bond that ties you together. And your language may not be all that you know, easy to understand sometimes, but there is something about following Jesus that ties you together. Paul wants these people to be good citizens of the state, but he does not want them to forget that they are foremost citizens of a different kingdom and that they serve the king of all kings. But he wants them to understand while you are living on earth, there's implications for living here on earth and being a good citizen of this place on earth. And so he says there, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Now there's two words used in these first three verses for authorities. You'll see, um, I'm with the HCSB right here. In verse one, it says for there, uh, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those instituted by God. Verse two, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. Now the word that's used there for authorities in those first two verses is a more general word, and it just refers to those who are over others. It's the word exousai. Can you say that? Exousai, okay? Exousai. It's, it's a general term for authorities. But now he comes to verse 3, and he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. And the word here that he uses for authorities is rulers, and it's the word archon. Can you say archon? Archon. Now, this refers specifically in its context to Roman rulers, specifically those, it's used in other places in in the scripture, to those who ruled over the Jewish people in the land, all right, in the land of Israel. Now, in the land of Israel, to have a Roman rule over you within a land that, that you believe that God has given you, because God said that he's giving you this land, That's a difficult pill for many Jewish people to swallow at this time. It's why you have people, for example, like zealots, who would go to the extent of being assassins because they did not want to be tied to Rome in any way, shape, or form. All right? Um, So there's there's exousé, 
general rulers, and then there's archon, which is, refers to specific Roman rulers who are, who are ruling over Jewish people in the land. So there's kind of the sense of oppression and, and command there. Now, one of the things that's repeated in the text here is a phrase um, that, that refers to authority coming from God. Uh, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, three times it says this. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. So when you see something repeated in Scripture, he's trying to bring us to an understanding. Rulers are put in place and established by God. And that's something that can be really challenging for us to wrestle with. Now, it's not as hard to wrestle with when rulers are doing what is good. But when rulers are doing what is bad, how do we reckon with rulers are put in place by God? (laughs) By God. All right. So, history is replete with rulers who have done good, and it's replete with uh, rulers who have done not good. Um, One of my favorite... uh, examples of this comes uh, from the book of Daniel and a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful, powerful ruler. At the time at which he takes Judah, which is the last of the Jewish people, and he takes pretty much all of them off to captivity in Babylon, he, he is the king of the king of the king. He had everything he wants but he's not always a good dude, okay? He does a lot of bad in the midst of this. And yet God uses a bad ruler to bring judgment to his people. But he also holds this bad ruler um, responsible for his own pride. Paul's view of government is that government in its ideal form is supposed to uphold good conduct, not bad. And good authorities look at good conduct, and they are generally not a threat to it. Um, So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Here, we'll go past these guys. All right, this is a a photo right here of the ruins of ancient Babylon and its reconstruction. And so on the right side of your screen, you'll see a palace there. That's one of Saddam Hussein's uh, palaces. And if you go then to the left, you'll find the reconstructed ruins from the time of Nebuchadnezzar. They're they're working on some stuff there. Um, One of the things Nebuchadnezzar was known for as well were these hanging gardens, all right? The hanging gardens were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And I show you this to help you get a picture of how opulent and how rich, which is kind of similar words, uh, and how powerful and well-off Nebuchadnezzar was. In in Nebuchadnezzar's world, in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, there's this description of a powerful ruler who carries off the people of Judah to Babylon. But through God's intervention, a Jewish person named Daniel uh, becomes an influencer within the halls of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Now, this kingdom was of the greatest and most glorious of cities in the ancient world. There's a Greek uh, historian named Herodotus who died about 425 uh, BCE, and he records that the outer walls of Babylon were, get this, 56 miles long, right? The outer walls of the city were 56 miles long, and it's like from here to the other side of Grand Rapids. Um, Uh, They were 80 feet wide. They were 320 feet high. So you have this massive, massive wall that surrounds the city of Babylon. And then there's these hanging gardens amidst a whole lot of other stuff. But one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar um, struggled with, what many leaders struggle with, 
is actually what many of us struggle with, if I'm honest with myself, is pride. Pride. Um, Pride at its center, one person has said, is taking credit for what God alone has done. And in Daniel chapter 3, it's recorded that the king acknowledges the power of Israel. That's right after the whole Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're in the fiery furnace because they refused to bow to um, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, golden statue. So he throws them in there. And then he, he looks in there after throwing them in. He's like, wait a second, didn't we throw three in? Now there's four. What is going on? And he says, praise be to the Lord, the the God of Israel. But in Daniel chapter 4, the king has a dream, and only Daniel can interpret it. All right? Unlike the first dream, which Daniel actually tells him what the dream is and interprets it, he, he goes and he tells this dream to all of his astrologers and the Chaldeans, and, and they can't do it. And what's significant about that is that this is probably the court that has the wisest um, of wise men in the ancient world. You know, if you wanted to know something, you would go to these people. It's, it's kind of like today, one of the top medical hospitals is the Mayo Clinic. If you want to know something, if you're at the Mayo Clinic, you know stuff is going down, and they're looking at you with a fine-tooth comb. Um, but Daniel uh, 3 records that, that um, the king acknowledges the power of Israel, but that there's this pride issue that comes in. So Daniel interprets the dream, and it's a dream that warns the king of the pride of his heart. Um, pride leads many people, including us, to self-dependence instead of God-dependence. Self-dependence often leads us to selfishness, and we see this, of course, all the time in government and world leaders. Now, the king's dream was a warning for him that his selfishness would result in God's judgment and removing him from his kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27, it records the response that the king should have had. And this is Daniel talking to him. He's, he's giving him an exhortation based upon the dream. He says, Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king, Daniel says. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Daniel, one of his wise counselors, is calling him out and saying, you are not honoring God by how you are acting. And if you continue down this path, there will be something uh, as a part of what God will do. This is what the dream is for. God will judge you for this. Now, um, we find the king's response in verse 28. What's interesting is Daniel tells him that, and about 12 months later, so it's a whole year, you can imagine he probably thought about that for a certain portion of time, and then as time goes on, you begin to forget all these warnings that God has given you, especially when they're not right in front of you. And, and in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it says this, after 12 months has happened, um, Nebuchadnezzar says this, is this not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power? to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory. All right? What a prideful statement. He's basically saying, look at me. Look at what I have done. And here's what happens. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and he gives it to anyone he wants. I share the story with you because sometimes we have this idea, even in the midst of a difficult um, government situation, we're like, where is God? (laughs) Friends, God is there. 
He gives time for people to repent. He gives time for people to do what is right. He calls us to pray. He calls us to be good contributors to the government and to the people around us. But friends, the scripture says that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether in judgment or whether in a recognition of their salvation that God has brought to them and they have received. So never forget the big picture. Never forget the big picture. Um, the key principle is this. God established authority or establishes authority, present tense, and he himself is over that authority, every authority. God also holds authority accountable. Now, sometimes it's not in the timing that many of us might wish, but nevertheless, God holds those in authority accountable. Think about that for a minute. Um, so, we come to uh, Romans chapter 13 again, and verses four through five. Uh, verse 4 says this, For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, <clears throat> because, it is not, but because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, twice as it's called God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on those who do wrong. Now, the historical context that Paul is writing in here is um, that recently a man by the name of Nero has become ruler. All right. Now, the way that Rome works is very different than the way uh, West Michigan and Michigan and the United States work. This was ruler. I mean, Nero is a crazy guy. Uh, the first couple of years um, of his reign and his rulership were actually pretty good. And then he kind of goes crazy. Um, he has good wisdom and good people speaking into his life in those first couple of years. But eventually he tries to kill his mom, and he eventually does if that kind of gives you a picture into a little bit of his life. Um, he becomes a horrible and vicious emperor. And, and one of the things about Rome is that Romans thought of themselves as a people as having brought order from chaos or peace from anarchy. But, but Paul recognizes that true power ultimately comes from God. And, and he tells his Roman hearers that government serves a good purpose in God's economy. All right, so the writing... He's writing to people who are going to be experiencing in just a few years quite the persecution by the hand of Emperor Nero. Um, but he says God, or government is God's servant, and he says first, for good. In other words, God's, government's role is to benefit the people they serve. That, that's the ideal. The, the ideal state is that government is there to benefit the people they serve. And he says, if you do what is good, government poses little threat. Now, last week I was driving, it was uh, Thursday morning, I think. I was driving on Central Avenue here in Zealand, and I was crossing through the, um, the stop at 96. And to my left on the sidewalk, there's an officer. And he's there, he's got his, his yellow, I think it was yellow, and he's got his stop sign because he's there to make sure that kids cross safely. Now, if I um, were to uh, blow through the stoplight, and if I were to drive recklessly, what do you think might happen to me? Exactly, I'd get picked up. <laughs> I think that's what Mariana said. I'd, I'd, I'd experience the heavier hand of the law, probably a ticket or a fine or something else. I didn't do that. I, I followed, you know, two hands on the wheel. You see, you see the police officer there? You want to be the model citizen when you're going past. Uh, I, I don't know about you. How many of you, when you pass a cop, like all of a sudden, if you had you know, like your hand off to the side, all of a sudden the hand comes up, and you're like, 
you know, <laughs> the, the last I can tell. My, my wife always knows when we were passing an officer because all of a sudden, like, my second hand comes up. And I was driving perfectly fine before, but it's this extra measure of I want to make sure I am completely within every possible rule I can be in order to care for others and so that I don't experience the wrath of doing something that was wrong. Um, so, so government is role in the ideal sense, is to benefit the people they serve. If you do what is good, government poses little threat. But it also has um, the God-given responsibility to bring wrath or to avenge. Uh, it says, if you do what is wrong, government's God-given role is to avenge or to punish. Now, the word used for avenge here in the text is a word that's also used in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it describes how God responds to someone who does wrong against his brother or sister. You know, that God is the avenger. And so, in many ways, government, in its right context, steps in to um, adjudicate or steps in to settle a matter that needs power outside of just the individual. Um, in other words, the responsibility of the state is to administer proper justice and to rightly avenge those who have been wronged instead of allowing mob justice to rule. Because when mob justice rules or when individual retribution rules, it generally does not end very well. It generally does not end very well. In the times in which we live, we sometimes observe people who want to take judgment and justice upon themselves. But we, we have to be very, very, very careful here. Vigilante justice is rarely justice. God has ordained courts and governments to administer justice, not individuals. That does not mean that courts and governments always administer justice rightly or fairly. Because, my goodness, we could fill books, I'm sure, of, of ways in which human beings have failed in that. But the ideal is that government is that which is instituted by God to bring right justice to a situation. Um, one of the things we also see in Scripture, an example of when the government or the state does not really act in the way that is right, is, for example, in Acts chapter 5. Now, in Acts 5, uh, you don't have to turn there, but the apostles are told by the authorities not to speak about Jesus. Don't, don't share that name. But the apostles could not obey the command, and they continued preaching about how Jesus had rescued and redeemed them from sin. Because remember, remember, when it comes to government, government is important. It is important that we submit that voluntary yielding and love, but we never submit to government when it contradicts the teaching of God's word, all right? There's a way to politely disagree, but we, we don't compromise God's word for the sake of the authorities. And in fact, the apostles say this. Um, they, they, they say, we cannot refrain from speaking. They, they, their foremost action was to submit to God, even if it meant defying the government of their time. And in verse uh, 5 of chapter 13 of Romans, <clears throat> it says this. It says, therefore. So you see a therefore, you're like, okay, it's kind of bringing some conclusion here. Therefore, you must submit for two reasons, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Now, conscience is what God has given us to discern what is wrong. Um, he uses this word good and bad, and if you remember from last week, um, it, it says in our portion from last week, it says, detest what the evil, cling to what is good. 
God does not say, I want you to go ahead and define your actions by what someone else says is good. I want you to define your walk by what I have said is good. The principle Paul is laying down here is if you do what is good, meaning if you do what is right in my sight, you obey and you listen to the governing authorities in all those contexts as best as you possibly can where they don't contradict with the teaching of God's word. He's like, that's a good place for you to be. That's a really good place for you to be. That's where I want you to be. Um, so he says, therefore, don't uh, submit so that you don't experience wrath and because of your conscience. And then he goes into these verses um, that are very um, forthright. Um, it says, and for this reason, so he's continuing it in verse 6, um, be, because of wrath, potentially, and also because of conscience, for these reasons, you pay taxes. Since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks. In other words, they're people who give of their whole life in order to bring order and um, tranquility and justice to the people they lead. That's God's ideal. And he says, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those who you owe honor. A couple years ago, uh, my wife and I were driving to uh, a state in the eastern part near New York, but er, rhymes with Pennsylvania. And um, one of the things we discovered as we were traveling to Pennsylvania is that the tolls are ridiculous. You drive on that toll road, it's 50 bucks to cross half the state. And I was like, I was blown away. I was not expecting that. And I I begrudgingly, very, very begrudgingly uh, paid my toll but I did not like it. <laughs> but here, Paul says, I, I want you to pay what you owe. I, I want you to pay taxes, and I want you to pay tolls, and I want you to respect, and I want you to pay honor. And within the relationships that we as individuals have with those who govern over us, sometimes those are difficult to do. All right, they're difficult to do because we might have a difference of opinion. We might think our taxes are too high. We might think that something is unfair. And the people of Jesus' day and the people of Paul's day understood this. And Matthew 22 is likely the background to Paul's comments. Matthew 22. If you want to, you can flip there really quick. Matthew 22 uh, occurs in the last week of Jesus' life. And, um, yeah, so uh, he's, he's coming in to the triumphal entry happens in Matthew 21. <clears throat> He's entering into this last bit of teaching in last days before, um, before he goes on to the cross. And he has some words about um, how we are to engage or how his disciples are to engage. And it says in Matthew 22, verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to trap him by what he said. All right, so the plans are nefarious from the very beginning. They have ill intent. They want to try and trap him. And it's the Pharisees right here. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Okay, so two things you need to know about this. Number one, the Pharisees are, are some of the lawyers, the legalists, the, 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 the people who really want to hold Jesus accountable, all right? They, they, they do not like Jesus. And we're entering this really tense last week of Jesus' life where they are out for him with whatever they have, all right? The Pharisees go, but, but they sent their disciples with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a group of Jewish people who had loyalty to Herod. Uh, Herod was the king. He was part Jew. He was part Idumean. Uh, Herod was all about, how do I amass a, um, 
a, a structure, a governmental structure for myself? How do I keep Rome happy? How do I reign over the people here in Judea? These were people who were not like, how do we follow the Torah? How do we honor God? These were people that would have this understanding of how do we maintain power, all right? So we have the Pharisees and we have the Herodians. And um, they, they come and they say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and, they, and teach truthfully the way of God. You refer to no one, for you don't sharp show partiality. They're buttering him up, really, is what's coming down. Therefore, tell, or tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we look at that, and we're like, you pay taxes, don't you? We may, you know, if you're more libertarian, you're like, I don't want to pay taxes over here. If you're more uh, um, Democrat-leading, you're like, let's pay, let's pay taxes. Even if you're Republican, you're like, let's, let's pay taxes. You, you kind of find where you go in there. But the hearers of this are going, oh, this is a tough question. Because if Jesus responds, you pay taxes, pay taxes, he's showing a certain allegiance to Caesar that observant Jews would take contention with. But if he says you don't pay taxes, then he's in trouble with the Romans because the Romans say you're supposed to pay the tax and they'll actually enforce it by the threat of power. So you're Jesus. You're faced with this question. You go, hmm, what do I answer? And so he, he says, I love this, verse 18, but perceiving their malice, <laughs> I love that, perceiving their malice, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? He doesn't hold it back. Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he says, whose image and inscription is this? So he's showing them a coin, all right? He's showing them a coin, and every coin, uh, or most coins, would have the picture of someone on them, all right? Coins in the ancient period were like modern billboards. They included the faces of emperors to deify them and to promote their message. Uh, for the observant Jew, you, you didn't want to have much to do with coins because you're carrying the image of someone who claims to be God around with you. All right, that, that's, that's kind of what's in the background here. Now, this tax is specifically the poll tax, too. And the poll tax was one of many taxes that people would pay. The poll tax is unique in that it's, um, it's for uh, a tax on personal property and agricultural products and it amounts to one day's wage per year. So think about what you make in a day's worth of work. That's this one tax, right? This one tax. That's what you're paying. Now, you might be like, oh, no big deal. But just remember, they have a whole bunch of other taxes on top of all this, too. William Barclay says this. He says, in the ancient days, coinage was the sign of kingship. As soon as the king came to the throne, he struck his own coinage. Even a pretender would produce a coinage to show the reality of his kingship. And that coinage was held to be the property of the king whose image it bore. Jesus asked whose image was on the coin. And the answer was Caesar's head was on it. Well then, said Jesus, give it back to Caesar. It is his. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give to God that which belongs to him. You know, so this, this happens in verses 19 and following. And I, I love it in 22. It says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. Jesus is picking up on something that goes back to the dawn of creation. He says, whose image is on this? Caesar's, okay? You render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But you render to God what is God's. Now, what is Caesar's? A lot of the things of this earth are Caesar's. But what belongs to God? What? Humans? Did I hear that? Yeah, humans. Genesis chapter 2 says this. 
It says, let me read it. In Genesis chapter two, God creates man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God intended you and I to be image bearers of the king. Not Caesar, but to be image bearers of God. He made us in his image. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, you pay your taxes. You do those things that you have to do being a part of a citizen here on earth. But he says, give to God what is God's. You, my friends, you and I, we are God's. We are stamped with the image of God. Christians have a calling to be a part of this earth and the people who inhabit it. And Paul is teaching us that we are to do our best to care for and to contribute to the safety we enjoy, to the services we use, to serve, to serve the community in our midst. This includes taxes, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. There are things of this world that belong to this world, but our lives, however, are marked by the image of God. As much as we live in this world, friends, we must never forget that we belong to God. We first and foremost serve God. It's for his glory. It's for his purposes. And when we look in the mirror, we see a person whom is made in the image of God to care for and to steward what he has given us. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves. When Jesus says, give to God what is God's, I think he's saying very much the same thing Paul says. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. This is your holy and spiritual act of worship. So, the question I asked you at the very beginning is, how do we relate to government, right? How do we relate to government? How does this tension occur within our life in the context in which we live? Well, a couple of thoughts to kind of bring this to a close. The first one is this. Um, uh, Peter says in his letter, Something very similar to what Paul says. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor is the supreme authority or to governors is those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves, live as free people, but don't use your freedom in a way to conceal evil. All right? Do good. Don't conceal evil. Everything in our life should be based upon what does it mean to do good by how God defines good and to not do evil by how God defines evil. And the general principle of submitting to the authorities and those who, um, who lead our country, our state, our community, is we want to do what is right and good and fair, and we want to treat those, even if they disagree with us, as people who are made in God's image. That's tough to do, though. It's really tough to do. Um, then he says this, Peter says this. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, there's two honors in there. There's one love in there, and there's one fear. And the word fear there does not necessarily mean be afraid of, although it has that connotation. It's to have respect for. It's, it's to come under the authority of God. Friends, we first fear God. We honor everyone, including honoring those who rule over us. 
We love the brotherhood. So, how do we live this out today? Well, in the U.S., I mentioned earlier, um, the Roman system was Rome ruled with an iron hand. All right? They wanted something, they did it. Uh, they wielded their power as strongly and as mightily as they needed to to place themselves in authority. In the United States, we're, um, bless the Lord, in a, in a different um, setting. Uh, we, we're a part of government, and we, we have a part of government by how we vote. We have a part of government by how we engage with those leaders around us and, and how we speak about others. So, a couple of thoughts, all right? A couple of thoughts here. Um, remember, our biblical values and principles what God's word teaches is always the most important for us. But it's not just the most important for us, it's actually the most important for the world. If, if we believe that the gospel matters, then to live the gospel is something that brings peace and shalom and wholeness and goodness to the world around us. Now that does not mean that everyone agrees. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because there's differing values of what is good and what is not. Christians are people who have said, we believe God's word is sufficient for our lives today. And we believe that following this in every way, shape, and form that we possibly can here on earth actually brings a better world because it brings the message of Jesus to the hearts of people, including us who were once broken. All right? So, so we engage, we vote, we do all these things with biblical principles in mind, always. Number two, um, these biblical principles do not always have a direct party, all right? In this room, we probably have a wide variety of people who think one thing about this and one thing about that and one thing about this. And the question we always have to ask, ask ourselves, whether we're dealing with issues of life or dealing with issues of race and racism or dealing with how do we care for the foreigner in our midst, dealing with identity and um, sexuality and issues related to marriage, we have to say, what does God's word say? And how do we live in light of God's teaching, not in light of what um, all the other messages that pervade our context? All right, so, so having godly biblical principles in mind is absolutely vital in engaging in a government where we are given the opportunity to have some degree of say and some degree of involvement, all right? Um, the other thing is, um, in the midst of how we engage with government and leaders and each other, um, several times Paul has said, don't sin, do good. And one of the areas in which we can often sin, and friends, I do this too, is we become frustrated and we, we, we disagree with, it, with people. And it's okay to disagree with people, but there's a way to disagree. There's a way to instruct gently our perspective on what the scripture has to say about issues that we face today. Now, again, that does not mean that people always respond with the same degree of graciousness, but it's what God calls us to. And so we, we can deal with truth, we can deal with God's word. You know, I, I love, I, I think I said this last week in talking about love. One of the things that, that is described with love in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love rejoices in the truth. 
right? One of the things that we are called to do is to be people of truth and to walk in truth and to present truth. But to do it in a way um, that seeks to bring good to people. Friends, we are first, we are first followers of Jesus. Somewhere after that, we're Americans. <laughs> Somewhere after that, we may or we may not have a political leaning. But every political leaning we should have should be one that should be biblically rooted in everything we do. And, and we should be people who can engage, engage with others, even others who disagree with us. And it's okay to disagree. And if you come into my office this week and you say, I disagree with you, I'm going to say, okay, what do you disagree about? Let's talk. <laughs> you know, I want to be a kind of person, a kind of follower of Jesus who deals rightly with what I see, who applies the word of God appropriately to every context that God gives me, but one who never demeans, and I do not do this perfectly, but one who never demeans someone who's been made in God's image. Now, that is the call for the believer, <laughs> all right? The context of Romans 13, Paul's talking to the church. Just imagine for a moment if the posture of humility and the posture of care and the posture of seeking truth would be that which the church is known for. Let's pray together. Lord God, forgive us. Forgive us for, for how we so easily can dismiss others. God, forgive us for how we, we take people who are made in your image and whether in our heart or whether in our actions, we treat them as less than that. But God, you also have placed us in a context in our world in which there are difficult decisions to be made, where um, the truth is often not relative, and your word calls us to do what is good, and to uphold the cause of the poor, the cause of the needy, the cause of the unborn. To, to pursue life, and not just physical life, but spiritual life, God, for people, uh, people who are made in your image, but people who don't have a relationship with you. God, give us a great burden for presenting truth in a world where truth is sometimes not welcomed or wanted. Help us to deal rightly and fairly, and God, even when there is misunderstanding, help us to see and to pursue clarity and nuance, because a lot of these issues that we face in our world today are, are issues that you speak about, but they're issues that in various contexts need some nuance to rightly understand what is going on in our context. God, I, I pray today for our nation. I pray, God, that you would bring a revival through your spirit to the hearts and minds of people who are far from you, you remind us in your word, God, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through the work of Jesus. God, thank you for the redemption you've brought to us through Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity we have to speak of this and to share this truth 
with loved ones and neighbors who do not have a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. We bless you. Even as you teach us to honor, to pray for, to submit, to do what is right and to do what is good, God, give us your spirit to guide us in this truth for our own specific circumstance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, there's much more that could be said. We could go into a lot of different things. Um, But there's kind of the big picture. I believe God wants us to hear as we enter into these next several weeks within our nation. If there's uh, something or anything we can do to support you, and what you are walking through in your context. We would love to be able to do that. We'd love to be able to pray for you. We'd love to be able to encourage you. Uh, We'd love to be able to continue this conversation. I'm sure I did not answer every question you had, and I'm sure that we could have a good dialogue over God's word and what does it mean to love God and to love the world he has made. Um, If if there's anything we can do to support you uh, and to encourage you in your faith, we'd love that opportunity. Uh, Would you stand with me? My friends, as we learn what it means to honor those who are in authority above us and to honor everyone and to love the brotherhood, the body of believers, may we never forget what it means to fear God. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. To love our neighbor as ourself. Scripture says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May this love be that which God increases in us this week as we become students of the text more and more and as we seek to walk it out. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.